to Habakkuk, which uh, is the 35th, I believe, book in the Old Testament. And you might want to start in Matthew, uh, the first book of the New Testament, and work backwards. Otherwise, you might get lost. Uh, it is a book in the Bible, so if you turn past it, then uh, uh, keep looking. Um, there are Bibles in the back, so if you don't have one, please take one. We, uh, this is the last week that we are in Habakkuk. It's been... Um, very personally challenging for me because I basically preach to myself or I should say God preaches to me all week and then I just get to puke it out on you on Sunday and it's difficult because I have to, uh, you know, really process the stuff myself. So we are, um, we ended last week with Habakkuk 2.20 and I got a lot to cover today so I'm going to get right into it and if you read Habakkuk 2.20, the last verse we ended with last week, it says this, but the Lord is in His holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before Him. And so I, I've sat on this verse, for whatever reason this week, um, a lot, and just really meditated on it, though I preached it last week. For whatever reason, it didn't hit me as hard as it did this week. Um, and that's probably because if you spend any time around me or my bride um, or my children, you will find that... Uh, Silence is not the first word that you would use to describe our family. Uh, we are a family of, of talkers, and we, we talk a lot, and my, my bride and I are both talkers, and when we uh, first were dating, we just was like, like nonstop talking, not necessarily about anything, but we produced, um, you know, three talkers, and so the big, you know, struggle or conflict in our family is just hearing each other because our words or our tongues are often getting in the way uh, of one another. And I've learned or discovered that just because you're a talker, like myself or, or my family, doesn't mean that you're actually a great communicator. Um, maybe you've learned that as you've interacted with me. Oftentimes, um, those who are talkers, talkers in that sense, uh, don't really like silences. And uh, they don't listen very well. And yes, this is somewhat of a confessional, um, but it's true. I, I have difficulty with silences. I don't like it just like, that bugs me, right? i got to talk. The wait time, as a teacher, was like, give wait time for people. Like My wait time was like two seconds. You didn't say something in response to a question. I'm giving you the answer. That's how I, I did it. And so I, probably why I became a teacher uh, and then eventually, obviously, a preacher because I got captive audiences and I can just talk. And a lot of people like to hear the sound of their own voice. I don't, but I just like to talk. And so since I was young, just a youngster, uh, on my little report cards used to get as a little kids, um, my teachers were kind, but they would say little cryptic things like, uh, Sam's voice carries. Right? <laughs> Translated, he doesn't shut up. He talks too much. And... I've always, uh, since I was young, I've been known to um, somewhat be a conversation dominator, where you come into a group and you're like, well, I clearly need to speak more here, and just kind of take control, and, and although my condition, I'll call it that, has improved over the years, I don't think it's actually ever going to be cured, and if it's not restrained, you'll see this, guarantee if you spend any time in a small group with me, um, that I tend to talk a lot. I tend to uh, cut off people, and I'm not saying this as like a praise. This is not a good thing. It's a sickness. Um, I tend to uh, generally fill the air with my thoughts 
whether or not people want to hear them or not, because I just assume that they do. I'm a talker. And so uh, I used to think that uh, you could uh, fake being a good listener if you, uh, you know, were able to remember the last, you know, chunk of stuff that people might have said when they asked you, did you just listen to what I said? Oh, yeah. But I have like a little recorder in my mind that is just has a little tape. And I just record stuff for future use in case that question is asked, not actually because I'm listening. Uh, most of the time, um, I, I, I shouldn't say most of the time, a lot of the time as a talker, I only hear and I don't listen because as I'm, quote, listening, I'm doing a lot of self-talk, right? And my self-talk is organizing my thoughts. So if this person foolishly takes a breath, then I'm, you know, ready to throw in my response because I've been preparing it the whole time. So that's not really necessarily a good listener. And so silence for me is difficult. It is very difficult. And I realized this week that silence is very difficult in my relationship with God. I don't even like to be around silence. When I write my sermons, you'll see me in coffee shops because I like white noise. I was the guy that did homework in front of the TV. I just I like to have noise. Well, this time I went up to and I went up to Kayak Point and sat there. There was no noise. Freaked me out a little bit. But I was trying to force myself to be silent because I realized that with my relationship with God, um, I never shut up. Not for a minute. I mean, I'm just always talking. I give him, you know, God lists of requests. Um, I talk about, you know, the same things regularly, which isn't necessarily bad. And some people will go, well, that's a sign of, you know, diligence and, and I'm pursuing God with the same. But it's like constantly, here's my list of needs, here's my list of wants. Here are the things I'm struggling with, and that's good in one sense, but bad in the sense if you never shut up, it's like, amen, that's it, move on. And it's almost as if, in my, and I'm just, I'll just be honest with you, in my relationship with God, it's like, I don't know if I'm even talking to a person at all. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when you, um, when you go out on a date, and the person only talks about themselves the entire time. You know, you ever had that experience? Or... Or you have someone over for dinner and they just are nonstop talking about their life and they never ask you any questions about yours. I wonder if God, you know, sometimes, you know, not that he needs me to hear about him, but he certainly needs me to listen to some things, he, a lot of things he has to say. And I don't know if I ever stop talking enough to actually listen and maybe meditate on God a little bit for a lot. And we could do a lot worse, a lot worse than be a little more silent before God. And I don't want to mistake it, because I think there is a, a difference between being silent with God and being silent before God. Maybe that's just semantics, but I don't think we should be silent with God. And Habakkuk, in this book, he cries out to God when he is overwhelmed by, by sin and by the brokenness that he sees and he experiences. And this is actually where Habakkuk's faith, I think, first starts. It's not at the end of the book and like, hey, this guy proves faithful. I think he proved faithful in chapter 1 where he cries out to God when things are hard. I think that's good. But I think oftentimes, and I wonder, when our emotions flare, when we're freaking out, when we have something physically just overwhelming or emotionally overwhelming or spiritually or whatever overwhelming, do we cry out to God? And if we do, what do we say? And if we do say something, do we ever wait for God to say anything back? 
Do we ask and wait for his response? And so Habakkuk complains twice, two pretty lengthy complaints. And he turns to God, and when God answers, I don't actually think at first Habakkuk is listening. I think he hears what he says, and he you know, probably is sitting there formulating his answer as he hears God say some things that are disturbing to him. Like, I'm going to raise up this evil army to attack the people and the sin that you see and judge it. Yeah, that's pretty bad, Habakkuk. And I, I, don't, I don't know if he's actually listening. He's like, whoa, whoa, what did you just say? And God's kind of still talking. He's like, holy snarfberger. Um, and he's thinking about his response and how he's going to talk back to God. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that you and I actually um, don't ever speak to God. Because in the past, when you turn to him in a time of trial or and when things got hard... He actually said something you didn't want to hear. You're like, that's it. A lot of time I talk to you, you like tell me things that are out of bounds. And so Habakkuk is one of those talkers, I think, though, who assumes he knows how God should answer or is going to answer. And it's all he's thinking about of his vision of God and what he's like. And he went on not actually expecting God to have his own plan or to be a real person, to have his own answer that might be different. He just wanted him to agree with him. And I think that's what happens whenever we encounter God's word. We, we turn to God and things get hard and God gives his word and you're like, that's not what I expected. And so what we do, and you've seen this maybe in your own life or the lives of others, we deny God's word. It's the sin in us to deny what God's word says. It's the same thing that happened back in the garden. First thing we do, it's, it's so obvious, we go, you know what, I'm not sure that's exactly what God said. Remember the Satan, when he, when he came to, to Eve and he tempts her, he says, oh, did God really say that? And so we start questioning, like, well, I don't really know if God actually said that. And then if, even if we go, well, he did say that, but the second thing is we go, well, we didn't really mean that. That's not what it means, that's your interpretation. You've probably heard that before, probably said that before. And then if you like settle on the interpretation, like, well, that's probably what it means, and that's really uncomfortable, but that probably doesn't apply to me in this situation, because God wants me to be happy in this situation. Happiness is this over here, although he says that's not what really he wants. But I think he wants this. So it doesn't apply to me in this case. It must be some other person. We play those games when God's word comes, and we're not really listening to God's word. We're hearing it, and we start twisting it and going, doesn't apply to me. And once God takes a breath after he says something that Habakkuk doesn't like, Habakkuk immediately starts to speak again. And by grace, he shows so much patience with Habakkuk, I think. He shows a lot of patience when he starts going, I don't like the way you do things, God. I don't like this way you have about you. I wouldn't have done it this way. And God, in his second response boldly declares in, in no uncertain terms, not, well, let me, let me explain it to you how it works out. Let me give you an intellectual, re- let me give you some emotional stuff that makes you feel better. Instead, he just says, the righteous, those who are right with God, are going to live by their faith. You're going to trust me, or you're not. That's it. Well, what do you mean, trust? Like, trust, so I'll trust what I can understand about you. I'll trust when it agrees with me. And he also says that I'm going to judge the unrighteous 
who trust their ability to make the circumstances work to their advantage. They try to twist it around, as we saw that the Babylonians did. But he says, God speaking, I'm going to preserve the faithful who trust that God has already worked out all the circumstances already, and you're just going to have to go with it. Even the really bad circumstances, which is difficult for us to sit on. Well, God doesn't, that, he doesn't have that kind of relationship with evil. He doesn't use evil. He doesn't allow evil, permit evil. Really? Habakkuk teaches us differently. And after singing what we saw last week, the taunt song, God ends by saying, and telling the world to be quiet, to be silent. Listen, because you all talk too much. You talk too much. And I sat with God this week on taking a Wednesday, always talking to God, you know, tell me what to say, and making those requests, and instead I just sat there quietly, which was very difficult, thinking about God, not writing really quickly and, and fast as maybe I do in the past. Because I think when we fill the air with, with words about what we see and what we want and what we need and what we don't like and what we hate and what we want to change and what we're overwhelmed with, what happens is we end up filling our hearts and our minds with not the awe of God, but the awe of our situation. Like, whoa, this is just so much. When God said in 2.14 His intention is to be filled with the glory of himself. But we always focus on the glory or the, the bigness of our problem, especially when we talk. And it's only after Habakkuk, we'll see here in chapter 3, has truly listened to God's word after he speaks this taunt song that he's no longer overwhelmed by sin and evil. That hasn't even come yet. That he knows going to come. He's overwhelmed with God. He is completely overwhelmed with God. And it's a great question. I sat there looking out on the water going, when was the last time I was overwhelmed with God to the point of silence? And I know that sounds like, well, that's a really Christian question that all pastors ask. But seriously, when was the last time you were so overwhelmed with God and maybe you haven't taken enough time to actually listen or think because you're always talking? He's silent before God, and out of his silence comes a song of faith that's in contrast to the song of faithlessness we heard last week. So chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to go through this whole chapter, so hold on to your hats. says, verse 1, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganoeth. We'll talk about that. You say it fast, and then they think you know what it means, you know? I always used to say, Shigayona, right? And they go, okay. Shigayona. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We'll sit on that chunk for a second. So from chapter 1, where we started, it's only three chapters, small little book. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, something changes in Habakkuk. Something completely changes. There appears to be this shift in his overall attitude and approach to God because both the beginning of the book is a prayer and the end of the book here is a prayer. So you have two different kinds of prayers and one begins with, Why? Where are you, God? 
And the last one here ends with, whoa, there you are, God. There you are. Two completely different things. A huge shift. Now, growing up, me and me have not done this, but growing up, my parents always told me that, you know, prayer is a simple thing. It's just, you know, it's just talking to God. I think that's a good thing. I told my children that in some sense. But I wonder that in a, in a culture that we live in where all sacredness has been lost, I believe, in, in just about everything, where everyone feels entitled to everything, like they deserve everything, if we've actually forgotten who we're talking to in our approach to God, we're entering the presence of the creator of the universe. I love when Moses goes before the burning bush and he drops his, on his face as he removes his sandals and he is silent. How can we expect to hear God or for God to hear us if we come into his presence believing that we actually deserve to be there? I mean, the presence of God should overwhelm us, but I don't think we go there. We're like, yeah, God, Jesus is my friend. God, the vending machine, give me my request, and he talks back. We're entering in the presence of God, the King, the Father, the Creator of all things. We need to be humble because we deserve nothing. In chapter 3, Habakkuk's prayer is not like the first part of the book, Random declarations or a litany of requests. It's a poem. And I love poetry. Love it. A lot of people hate it. There's a lot of English teachers that hated it. I don't want to teach poetry, metaphor. The thing about poetry, though, is that it's much different than just talking because it's heartfelt. And actually, as I taught creative writing, I used to think poetry is like, you throw some words down and it rhyme and you're good to go, right? There's a lot of structure to poetry. And there's structure to his prayer here. There's a formalness, but it's a formalness that bleeds out of his heart. Completely different than just a conversation with God. And Habakkuk finally, I think, has his mind off himself. He has his mind off the sinful brothers. He's looking at these guys are screwing up. He has his mind off the terrible Babylonians, and he's totally focused on God. That's all he hears, all he sees, all he knows. And he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. The report of you. And that term, that shagayona, shagayona, it's a term descriptive of, this, of, of, of what is a musical poem. And in other words, Habakkuk's prayer here is, is a song. It's a song that's supposed to be put to music. And you have the word uh, silah in there. You'll see it kind of appear and italicized like every, I don't know, five verses, six verses, a little random. And that is used... Um, it's a musical kind of, they don't really know perfectly what it is, but they know it has to do with music, and it's used 71 times in the Psalms. And it's somewhat of a technical, technical device for music where as they're, as they're playing music and they're playing a song, there's a pause. You're supposed to pause and the people meditate or cry out a response depending on how they're feeling at the moment. And it gave this opportunity as the song is being sung to basically corporately praise in response to what they just heard about God. It's a, sometimes a silence. Sometimes it was, um, people would be silent and they would just start playing the music. 
Sometimes it was um, a place where they all would speak something akin to what we would say, like, amen, let it be. I think suffering oftentimes draws us away from a focus on God, and we end up spending much less time on the report of God's work and instead give God a report of everything. And even this little phrase causes us to have to stop as we read, and we're going to read what God does and just go, whoa, and just sit on it and be forced to meditate on God and His Word, and it should bring us to a place of fear, a place of deep reverence. That is why when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, He said, here's what you start with. Our Father, right, who is in heaven, holy is your name. That's where it starts. I get so, I I kind of not make fun of my kids, well I do, but I mean I try to get them to stop saying dear Father, because it's like, sounds like you're writing a letter. It's supposed to be dear, dearest Father, my Lord, amazing God. But it's like, dear God, from Sam. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like, because it becomes so routine. But we're supposed to go, this is the holy God whose presence we're walking into as the first thing. Where we're focused only on Him, not on our lists, not on our problems, on Him alone. And then, when you begin to meditate on the name of God, what that actually means, if you look at the Exodus, is focusing on the character of God as He's revealed in His acts. That's what Exodus was all about. He said, I'm going to declare my name. Wham! Ten plagues. Can you just, like, list your name for us? Like, Yahweh, that's it? His character is demonstrated. His name is proclaimed by the works that he does. But as we approach God, we don't, again, I don't think we often talk and focus on what God has worked and what he is working. We're always kind of approaching God with our work. What we can do, what I should do, what I did. A faithful prayer, I believe, expresses personal desires. We do prayer desires, but we always pray in submission to God's will and God's work. Because God's goal is His glory. And Habakkuk is, at this point, done complaining, done questioning. And he does ask, he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. Not Israel, not his faith, his work, God's work. And again, I think this is why Jesus says as the second thing in his lesson on prayer, your kingdom come, God, your will be done. So we start with, oh my gosh, Lord, you are amazing, you are huge, you are all-powerful, you are faithful, you are righteous, you are just. Your will be done as we enter. And then he goes into this list of all the way through verse 15 of God's judgment. And we heard a, we heard a song, if you will, that described his desire and his plan to judge all of sin, even Israel's, but specifically the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's only request in this entire prayer that it is, is to have mercy And the rest is a praise of the sovereign God for his past acts of wrath that took place as part of the redemption of his people. So he just goes on a list of what God has done. And it's awesome. It's awesome. And we 
are so distant from the Old Testament story that we, we can't even, unless we sit and meditate and go, what was this actually like? We don't recognize the awesomeness of God, and God becomes this old man sitting up on a chair waiting for our requests and saying, yes, no, good kid, bad kid, like Santa Claus. We have a history book, history, facts. These aren't myths. These are records of what God has actually done. And if we can sit on that, which is where he goes, it makes God big. So here we go. He's going to go through this whole song. It's awesome. Chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 3. As he begins to pray, talk about God's wrath. He says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. And pause. First, remember, in terms of the Exodus, people have been sitting around for 400 years going, where's God? And God heard them, and God saw, and God came. He responded to the cries of his people. Now, Temnon and Paran describe the campsites Israel actually had at the bottom of Mount Sinai. That's where God came down and gave him the Ten Commandments. So that's what he's talking about. And this is where God met his people in all of his glory. And he settled on top of this mountain, the God who descended with fire, it says. So much so that it burned the rocks. He comes down in fire. He covers it with thick smoke. The sky is full of lightning. It's difficult for us to even envision what that was like. But it scared the bejesus out of them. They were freaked out. And he said, don't even come near. Don't even try to look through the cloud because you're going to die. This is the God who when he spoke from the mountain, people were scared because the mountains shook. It was like thunder and the people trembled. That's the God who came. We sit on that. And then he goes in verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and then the internal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Selah. Stop and meditate. This is the God who brought, at the time, Egypt, the greatest nation on the earth, to its knees. This is the God who turned the Nile River into blood. This is the God who brought forth gnats and disease and frogs and giant 100-pound hailstones to crush a powerful kingdom. This is the God who through this whole thing proved this. Check this. This is awesome, right? Proved that he was in control of water. He was in control of the air. He was in control of the land. He was in control of the economy, the government, the health, the weather, the animals, the insects, the light, the darkness, life and death of cattle, people, whatever. That's what he proved. These are his tools for his glory. There's nothing. We, we freak out when the, the market goes crazy. Like, you really believe that's out of his control? That means you're in awe of something that's not God, and your God is, my God's huge. 
huge. Like, he's got the whole world in his hand. The whole world is like not even a speck of dust in his hand. That's who God is. We go, God. I mean, the God who named every single star has a name. Carl Sagan, there are billions and billions. Yeah, he's got billions and billions of names for each star. That's big. Verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. Stops in the middle of that verse. I love that. There's a pause there. It's like, bring the arrows, boys. I mean, that's that's scary. That's scary a little bit in a good way. And the two nations he mentions here are the ones that lied on each side of the Red Sea as they came through. And they were witnesses to what God did in a powerful way to redeem Israel from Egypt. And Moses, his father-in-law, this Midianite pagan priest named Jethro, he expressed more belief in what he saw and what he heard about, actually, he didn't even see it firsthand, than many of the Israelites themselves who experienced it. Redeeming them from Egypt was only the beginning, though. He had sworn to bring them into the promised land, a, a place of rest, a place where God would dwell with them. And this happens through conquest, an impossible conquest. These are slaves, brick-laying slaves. And he's like, yeah, you're going to take out the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and all these people. And I'm like, what? I can, like, build a really great fireplace or outdoor barbecue, but I don't know about killing somebody. It's because he's a warrior. God is a warrior. God is a warrior. And he's like, he's got weapons, and he uses them. He uses them. He has him pause right there, right before he unleashes. I love it. And then the second half of verse 9, it says, You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The mountains writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You, God, marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Pause. Man, that's just like, I just love... we. We've got a God who's a warrior. He's a manly God. I cannot stand the pansified God that has been created in this world. Yes, He is a God of love and mercy for those who are His. But He is a God of wrath against sin. This is the God who conquered Canaan as recorded in the book of Joshua 
which I believe we're going to hit in the fall. And before they even began their conquest, if you read the beginning of Joshua, Joshua sees a, a man standing somewhat outside the camp with a sword drawn. And he comes up to the guy, because he's pretty intense. And he goes, so, uh, how you doing? Good. So are you uh, for us or for our enemies? And just so you know, it's Jesus, I believe. And in response to his question of, are you for us or enemies, he says, no. No. That doesn't really work out very well. No, it's not really. He says, no. And he says, I'm not on your team. You're on mine. I'm the captain and the commander of this thing. You just come along for the ride. And that's what you see in Joshua. And it's amazing. He turns these bunch of complaining, brick-laying slaves into warriors. And even before they're really any kind of warrior, this is a God who, who in the book of Joshua brings down the walls of cities with the voices and trumpets. Because that's all they got. They're like, you know, we really can't bring these walls down. Just march around and then yell and blow your little trombone when I tell you to. Okay. I like to see, you know, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf using like, hey guys, we're going to, uh, I know that ages a little bit, but we're going to uh, use trumpets here. Just go ahead and yell, and we'll get them out of Kuwait. Didn't happen that way. But God, He don't care. He uses whatever He can. Then it gets even crazy. That This is the God who causes, in Joshua, I believe it's chapter 10, the sun and the moon to stand still for a day as they battle. So that, uh, you know, they had time to battle? No, because most of the battling is being done by God who was hurling out huge fiery hailstones and lopping off the heads of people. God is. He's like, we're going to pause here for a minute. Awesome! Right? Incredible! Imagine, you're like Israelite. You've had like a, you know, a trowel for your whole life, and then the guy puts like a pitchfork or a sword in your hand, and you're like, all right, I'm going... How am I going to do this? Something, shoot, boom, nice. You know, and you just kind of keep going. This is the God that we serve. He doesn't put a battle in front of us without going in front of us. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It should bring us hope and joy. And honestly, Christians are some of the most hopeless, joyless people I've met. This is the God who fights for us. The God who does what looks like the foolish impossible. And we're going to worry about how big is your impossible because God is a heck of a lot bigger. Verse 14 keeps going. Love it. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, most likely speaking about the Red Sea and the the division of it, the surging of mighty waters. And then verse 16, after he's gone through this litany, it's awesome, I hear the report, and my body trembles, and my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God is victorious over everything. 
nature, men, whatever. And when Habakkuk shuts his mouth and remembers who this God is, whom he serves, he trembles. Causes him to shake. Causes him to fear. His lips are quivering, not over the sin of Israel, not over the threat of the Babylonians. He is quivering and fearful over the awesomeness of God and who God is. He's finally got his mind off of everything and focused on God that not only brings him some sense of comfort, but fear. I believe if the pure awesomeness of God has not moved you in that way, and I can't say that I'm always moved by that, but when I stop to meditate on it, if that doesn't make you tremble, if that doesn't make you your lips quiver a little bit by the just amazing power of God, Something might be wrong. It's not with God. You might be talking too much, but clearly you haven't meditated on who God has revealed himself to be. Your God's small. And Habakkuk, I believe, is trembling in great fear. And he is, he is the best way to describe it, he is in awe. He's just in awe. And I could say fear, and I think that's a good word, but unfortunately that, that, that wonderful world, word has just become little more than just I'm scared. And you have these pastors trying to re-explain it, and, and, and I think awe is better. It's partly emotional, and it's, it's partly intellectual, and it does affect us physically, I believe, where you're combined with a sense of dread. There's the fear piece, and yet respect and mystery and wonder all at the same time. And I think we partially experience this when you see a beautiful sunset, Right? Or I love that show, I think it's on Discovery, where it's like destroyed in seconds or something like that, where you see something just, oh, huge explosion, and you just, that's amazing, so destructive and powerful, but you're in awe of it. Or the birth of a child, you're like, how does that happen? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Where it's this, this fear and this dread all at the same time, where you're almost scared of it, but you're also like drawn to it. All at the same moment. And it's in those moments, I believe, that you feel how small you are and you see this amazing display of power that scares you a bit and yet it's a beauty that you just want to be with. You want to be with. And so after verse 16, you have 16 verses of praise to God and His salvation. He closes the chapter with, I believe, some of the most powerful words in the Bible that none of us actually want to read. I can say that. Want to believe. It's the song of faith. It's, it's the, the meat of it. And these words describe, I think, a genuine heart of faith that trusts in the God of my salvation through all circumstances, rejoicing in God's control and His sovereignty and His power because of what He has done even if he does nothing else from this point forward. And so what I'd like to do is read it together, but you may decide whether you read it or not, because if you read it, you're going to gain truth. Well, you're going to hear it anyway. But it's somewhat of a confession. It's a confession of faith. 
This is what faith looks like. What is faith? Habakkuk 3. So we'll read it together. You decide if you want to read it or not. It's only three verses, 17 and 19. I'll try to read it slow because it's always weird to do this. Go to the next verse. Here we go. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Choir master with stringed instruments. A little instruction at the end there, huh? That's faith. That's living by faith. There it is. If I don't get the job, though I'm not healed, though my kids don't behave, though I cannot pay my bills, though my marriage is hard, though I work hard and am not recognized, even if my worst case scenario occurs, or is even worse than I think, I'll trust Him. That is faith. We like to believe this prosperity gospel is such crap. You believe you'll be... If our life is going to be like Jesus, we're going to live like that. Where things happen that we don't want to happen. And the difference between someone who has Jesus and someone who doesn't is there's hope and there's strength and there's even, dare I say, joy. Habakkuk says that he'll do more See, this isn't the Christian life. I'm just going to grin and bear it because I'm a Christian and I'm just going to bear down and trust. There's an aspect of that, but remember, Habakkuk knows what's coming next. He knows it's going to get worse, not better. He's expecting it. It's like, here comes the storm. A lot of people are going to suffer. And yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Jesus. That's where my mind will go. And as another pastor in, in, our, in our network, named David Fairchild said, he, I think he said it best, only Christianity, only Christianity has a God that actually intervenes and comes into the world of suffering. And if God has come and suffered, He must have reasons for its existence if He was willing to come and get involved Himself and suffer on the cross. And He says, I've got reasons and one day I'll completely remove it, but to show you that I care, I've come and involved myself in it. Whoa. That should cause us to tremble. Our God entered our crappy circumstances that, quite frankly, we created. And so I will take joy in God whatever the circumstance is. And I will find strength in God, and I will find hope in God, and I will find peace in God, not in the circumstance. And I love the end. I will like a deer. And he's talking about a deer that climbs cliffs, right? 
I will climb to heights. And maybe you've seen this. There are people in our church that are suffering greatly, and yet I've seen them climb to places they probably thought, never thought possible because of their faith. I will climb. I'm not content to simply hang on and not die. I will climb in his strength, not because of what I see in front of me, but because I'm more of where, aware of who God is and who I'm not. Of what he has done, is doing, and can do, and what I can't. That is faith. And I pray that this simple little story of Habakkuk, this beautiful picture of faith, encourages you. It should encourage you because the beginning sounds just like us. And the end is where I want to be. And I don't know if I'm there. And I think it's probably a life of Habakkuk where we go back and forth and we constantly have to be reminded of who God is. And quite frankly, that's why we're here. Not here to save people. Not here to build a big church. Simply here to go, that's God. Whoa. We celebrate communion every Sunday for those who love Jesus, who believe he died and rose from the dead for him or you or her, that he died in your place, the death you deserve, and he was raised to new life and gives you that. Whoa. That's what we're about. That's what we point to for faith, to get power, to get strength, and to get hope even if nothing else happens. We have that. Let's pray. Father God, may you be honored and glorified. You are holy. You are righteous. You are perfectly just. You are more good than I could ever imagine. Lord, you are strong. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are wrathful. Lord, you are all-powerful. You are all-pure. Have mercy on me and us sinners and increase our faith. In the blood of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand with us and respond.